We're going to go ahead and kick off episode 506 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear with the song The Creeper. It is from the album Lucky Jinx, and it comes from the surf band The Space Needles. That's the spelled T-H-E-E, Space Needles. They are based out of Seattle, Washington. You can find their album over at thespacenedles.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, which is the website for... Monster Kid Radio, the podcast you're listening to right now. I am your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. This week, we have an old friend returning to the show by the name of Tim Durbin. Tim has been on the show in the past, and I told you last week he was going to be here. I kept my word. He is here this week, and we're going to talk about a movie from 1968 called The Bamboo Saucer. That's coming up here. We also have, of course... Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And in it, he gives us a look at a classic film from a unique point of view. Well, he gives us what the magazine gave him regarding a movie being told from a unique... You know what? You're just going to have to wait to listen to Kenny's segment. I thought it was really cool. Also, a particular biopic that I have a little bit of love for, despite the fact that it's not very historically accurate... It gets brought up a couple of times, and that made me happy as well. Also, I know I keep singing his praises, but Mark Matsky's Beta Capsule Review this week is super cool because, man, I feel like I say this all the time, too. He talks about one of my absolute favorite ultra kaiju. You know what? Scratch that. He talks about one of my favorite kaiju, period. Ultra, Godzilla, Gamera, all of them. This is one of my absolute favorite kaiju monsters of all time and i think when you listen to mark's segment you'll realize why pretty quickly but yeah i I just adore this guy and it is somebody that i'll probably bring up if i ever do get around to scheduling that top three favorite ultra kaiju episode with mark and a few other people i've had express interest in coming to the show to do that as well so maybe we'll do some sort of a round table isn't it great how i just kind of put mark on the spot here regarding getting him on the show to do certain things you know actually i don't feel all that bad because he and i are swapping emails and we are going to have him on the show in the near future to talk about the legend of boggy creek that'll be happening sometime this year hopefully within the next month or two if not sooner so stay tuned for that stay tuned for kenny's segment stay tuned for the conversation with tim durbin that's all happening right after this I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, and plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again, and remember, 
the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Dr. Tongue's I had that shot, 7129 Northeast Fremont Street, vintage goofiness from years gone by. Sci-fi and fantasy memorabilia. We specialize in things your mother threw away. And some she didn't. Dr. Tongue's Toys. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. What would be worse than discovering that the island you live on could sink at any moment? How about the arrival of the primordial amphibian Ragon at the same time? That's both the dramatic dilemma of the plot and the title of the 20th episode of Ultra Q, which received its first run on May 15, 1966. An undersea volcanic eruption turns all eyes to the island of Iwanajima, home of Dr. Ishii, who had long theorized that such a cataclysm would mean its submergence. Most of the island residents turn a deaf ear to the scientists' speculation, preferring to concentrate on their everyday maritime occupations. It is just such a fishing vessel that catches a strange egg in its net, and, to the astonishment of June and Yuriko, whom Ipe had flown to the island, Dr. Ishii pronounces it the egg of the Ragon an antediluvian amphibious humanoid that may still be a viable species. It isn't long before a Ragon surfaces and removes all doubt, which would be distressing enough, except, at the same time, the seismic activity below the ocean's surface has begun to intensify. Once again, the man in the monster costume was Bin Furia, who was getting valuable experience in the lead-up to his suit acting as Ultraman. He would, in fact, fight a giant Ragon in that series' fourth episode. Here in Ultra Q, Ragon is a tall but nevertheless human-sized figure, a self-conscious and heartfelt tribute to 1954's Creature from the Black Lagoon. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. No! No! Sheer stark terror grips you in underwater 3D in Creature from the Black Lagoon. The most terrifying monster of the ages rises from the sea, raging with pent-up passions. Making every man his mortal enemy, every woman's beauty his prey. Creature from the Black Lagoon in 3D, starring Richard Carlson and Julie Adams. Every horrifying scene leaps out of the screen right at you. A universal re-release rated G. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we are going to look at films that merited articles in issue 33 from May of 1965. An extreme close-up of Cheney's Hunchback by Ron Cobb greets us from the cover. The first film featured is the not-so-classic Nabonga, with three pages and four photos and this brief write-up. When the plane she was piloting crashed in a jungle, Julie London wondered if she would return to civilization alive. Little did she dream of the amazing adventures that would beset her and she would become a kind of female Tarzan, befriending a huge denizen of the African forest, Nabonga. Like Ngagi before him and White Pongo, this great ape felt a monkey-like curiosity, a Kong-like feeling of possession for the strange pale woman creature who came so mysteriously into his savage domain 
from the body of a great bird fallen from above. After that, we have a massive 18-page, 26-photo film book of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It features images from mainly the Cheney version, but also includes photos from the Anthony Quinn version as well. There's also a photo of James Cagney as the Hunchback from Man of a Thousand Faces. Foray himself provided the intro to this article. A Universal Super Jewel production was what the studio proudly called its picture when they produced Victor Hugo's classic novel of the doubly crippled Quasimodo, contorted in mind as well as body. It is unlikely that I had yet reached my seventh birthday when I first saw The Hunchback of Notre Dame in 1923, and how it thrilled me. I probably believed every moment of it at the time. What did I know of the secrets of makeup then? It may have been the first time I ever even heard of Lon Chaney. Late in January of this year, I saw the Chaney version of The Hunchback again. I have, of course, seen the Lawton and Quinn versions in between and re-seen Chaney's film on a variety of occasions. I do not mind telling you that at 48, Chaney's performance still sent chills up and down my spine, and I left the theater with a lump in my throat about as large as the hump on Lon's back. To me, to see the master of them all in The Hunchback is still a rare and wonderful emotional experience. I hope I can share it with you in the following pages, partly with the story, but mainly with the pictures collected over a period of 40 years. The film book itself is interesting as it tells the story of the film in first person from the perspective of Esmeralda, the gypsy girl. You can get an idea of the detail the writing included with this highlight from the film. Suddenly, breaking his self-imposed silence, Quasimodo cried in a hoarse and furious voice, like the roaring of a wild animal. I thirst. This cry of distress served only to heighten the mirth of the good people of Paris. Water, I thirst, he cried repeatedly, only to be mocked and pelted with the foulest of liquids. There was none who would go near his hideous body. I gave him water from the fountain, cool water, and covered his poor revolting body with the tattered garment they had torn from him. My hands touched his miserable flesh and his eyes, his eye, turned to see who had thus stooped to touch him. From the look on his face I shrank, shrank in some explicable way akin to the shrinking I feel when Prince Charmin looks on me. I can't explain that. It is too deep for me, only I knew that within the deep-dug wells of that unspeakable soul, a love beyond man's feeble explanations was marvelously born. I had been kind to him, my hands had touched him, a woman's hands. His helpless flesh was powerless to say the things born in the half-blind soul. But I knew. I knew. He groaned. Thank you. Last up is a report on the Hollywood premiere of the Corman Poe Price classic, Tomb of Lygia. It features four candid photos of fans with Vincent Price, Carol Borland, and Forrest J. Ackerman. Here is the whole report. When they opened the Tomb of Lygia, everybody was there but the author. Blood-red arc lights pointed crimson fingers at the man in the moon. It was a full moon and a full house. Vincent Price arrived in a horse-drawn hearse, closely followed by Vampira in a battery-operated hearse. Jeeper's keeper made one of his rare personal appearances. Jeep came in a Jeep. What else? Jeep is the rich man's TV creep of Los Angeles, the local dusk jockey who sleeps in his padded coffin by day and emerges by night to add the fright of the horror films which are revived once a week on his not-for-the-week television show. Jeep was looking in his usual poor health with his pasty white face resembling shade number five of LePage's glue. 
his eyes all bloodshot, looked like he had too many shots of blood, and his hair neatly combed with a toothless comb, which is a neat trick if you can do it. The toothless comb matched his mouth, which resembled the shape of things to gum. The pride of Frankenstein, his bride, was there in the person of Elsa Lanchester, and Carol Luna Borland of Mark of the Vampire fame came in her famous Two's Company Three's a Shroud outfit. Carol always makes a hit on her personal appearances, especially with the bat she carries. Scores of FM fans were recognizable in the crowd and others were unrecognizable behind makeup and masks, such as are shown on these pages. Vincent Price was there, Fern Langdon, representing the Don Post Monster Mask Studios, and of course, hundreds of autograph seekers. There were radio interviews and prizes, and the Tomb of Lygia was opened every two hours all night long. A night a throng of Los Angeles film monster fans will long remember. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Edgar Allan Poe's Tomb of Lygia. Poe considered it his masterpiece. She will not die because she willed not to die. Vincent Price, magnificent, macabre, defying the deathless, jealous spirit of Lygia. A nightmare of terror, pitting their lust for life against the unholy powers of the undead. The undead attack the living. A wondrous world of maddening horror, starring Vincent Price in Edgar Allan Poe's Tomb of Lygia in color. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, like I said last week on the show, when I saw this week's guest post on Facebook that he was watching this movie and was reviewing it, I got excited because it's something that's been on my radar for a while. I've just never really gotten around to watching it before. When I asked him if he thought it was MKR fodder, he said he... Thought so, so what better chance to get Tim Durbin back onto Monster Kid Radio to talk about the 1968 film, The Bamboo Saucer. Tim, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. Thanks. It's really good to have you here, man. And I'm excited to get into this movie. Like I said, it's been on my radar for a while. It's not something that uh, pops up in a lot of conversations when it comes to like science fiction movies and that sort of thing. And really... There's not a lot of heavy sci-fi elements in most of this movie. Right. Towards the end, it gets really sci-fi. But I was going to say, it's also been a movie that's hard to find information on. 
there wasn't a whole lot of ballyhoo with it, not a whole lot of press, but um, it did come out, and um, I do think it's pretty enjoyable. It's really interesting. Uh, you know, a little bit of the research that I've done, and, and like you said, there's not a lot out there, but a little bit of the research I've done says that this movie was re-released like a year later under a different title, maybe even cut down a little bit. Uh, I, I don't know, were they trying to double dip or, or what, but I think this movie deserves a, another look. Yes, I agree. Uh, it is, uh, like I said earlier, from 1968. It feels a lot like a Cold War kind of thing for a big chunk of it. Right. I mean, and it's kind of hard to look at a movie from this era with Russians and Americans doing stuff without feeling, hey, Cold War, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but there, there is a, a flying saucer. I mean, the spoiler uh, as if the title doesn't tell you that there's something saucer like that happens in the film before we get into the movie itself though tim i just wanted to ask uh, are you still doing uh, updates on your blog these days yes on my movie blog maybe not as frequently as um before because of health issues but yeah i'm still trying to keep it up and that's over at viewing the classics.blogspot.com i'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that and i think i've put links in the show notes before here uh this is a fun site because and i think i've said this before to you as well i appreciate the capsule like reviews mm -hmm. that you do here you don't get too in depth but you hit enough notes to kind of tell us what the movie's about right and in most cases make me want to go track down the movies so you've really added to my to watch list quite a bit over the years <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah, I mean, since the last time I talked to you about this, you've actually updated your site with two more reviews. So, yeah, you're still going, man. <laughs> yep. <laughs> a Jerry Lewis movie? Really? Yeah, yeah. And it was one of the few sci-fi movies he made. Sorry, I'm getting distracted <laughs> now reading about Visit to a Small Planet. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I should step away from that. Although Jerry Lewis does have a weird genre connection every once in a while. So it's interesting to see that pop up. Right. Are you, and this is way off track, are you familiar with the movie Raimi? No, I don't think so. It's from 1960, and uh, the only reason I bring it up and the reason it popped up in my brain, the theme song is written and sung by Jerry Lewis. <laughs> That's the only involvement that he has with it. Otherwise, it's not a sci-fi movie at all, except it stars John Agar and Julie Adams. <laughs> so, it, of course, it's something that I needed to get my hands on and track down, and I've watched it since a couple of times. I don't know why it's never had an official release. So whenever I see somebody who mentions Jerry Lewis in a genre uh, <laughs> area, I'm thinking, oh, oh, yeah, it's it's a weird one, but it's cool because it's John Agar and Julie Adams. So oh, my yeah. man and my girl, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Anyway, Bamboo Saucer, Bamboo Saucer. How did you first find out about this movie? Actually, it was years ago when I was going through a blockbuster and I saw they had it on um, VHS and the title was just a little off putting for me. I thought it was going to be a, a cold war drama and, and something I wasn't interested in. But years later I, I figured out all of films had, had released it on uh, DVD and I decided to check it out. I think all of films uh, was how I first found out about it too. Um, it's something that popped up on my radar once uh, when I was part of a uh, a mail order Blu-ray rental thing that was not Netflix, but focused more on some of the more obscure stuff. And I always kept meaning to check it out and then just kind of forgot about it. So, uh, yeah, it just there's something about it that doesn't say, hey, Monster Kid, check this out. When you look at the poster, <laughs> you look at the title, that sort of thing, even though it's got saucer in the title. I'm really glad that... Uh, 
you gave it a little bit of a shine on Facebook because I found myself really enjoying this film when I sat down to watch it. Yeah, apparently it was um, an idea by Jerry Fairbanks, who was behind the popular science series of um, film shorts that were coming out in the 50s and 60s. And he decided he wanted to make a picture which was full length and which covered some science concepts. So this seemed ideal to him. He got a script that was written by two very famous sci-fi people, Rip Van Ronkel, who co-wrote Destination Moon, and John P. Fulton, who did the special effects for all those films uh, for Universal and um, later some for Paramount. When I saw the uh, Van Winkle name turn up on screen, I thought, hey, I know that guy. And I, I had to go back and double check because I, I, I knew the name, but I didn't connect him with some of these other movies. Um, so, yeah, finding out that he was involved in some of these other films, these other genre films that I enjoy. <laughs> like, hey, you know, that's another reason why I need to check this movie out. Yeah. Uh, and I really liked the cast, too. I, I thought they were very sincere. Nobody acts like they're just kind of making a lark out of this thing yeah there's some flying saucer stuff in it but they even take that real serious as well uh danduria i think i'm saying his last name correctly i really enjoyed yes uh, this is his last film but i really enjoyed <laughs> yes he was a, a big star in the 40s um mm-hmm. uh, in a number of film noirs and that sort of thing so this is a little out of his area but uh I thought he did an excellent job. I thought everybody did. Yeah, I was also really taken by our, our lead uh, actress, yes, Lois Nettleton. Uh, I was really taken by her. I didn't know anything about her. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, she's not really Russian, no. <laughs> <laughs> which I had no idea. I, I really thought, you know, the accent was, was good enough. It had me fooled. Yeah. Uh, and I'd be remiss. Uh, I don't know if I'd hear the end of it from Scott Morris if I didn't mention that she's got a Disney connection. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> she once voiced Maleficent for a TV show on Disney Channel. So, <laughs> oh, uh, oh, and apparently she did some uh, Spider-Man the Animated Series voice work as well. Looks like she did a lot of voice work and television work. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah, somebody else I didn't know anything about when I started watching the movie. I thought, oh, yeah, blonde Russian. Cool. Speaking of voices, um, mm-hmm. Bob Hastings, who plays... Uh, an important role in the film as one of the Americans. Uh, he did a lot of voice work as well. He was Commissioner Gordon on the Batman animated series. Oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. He did a lot of acting in the 70s as well. But it's interesting that, that they had a couple of different people who went on to vocal careers. You know, I feel like most of the actors and actresses in this are people that I either didn't know anything about or were just kind of like on the edge of me knowing about them. Mm-hmm. With the exception of one guy. <laughs> There's one guy in here that's like, I know who that is right off the bat. <laughs> he's been in a lot of movies, a lot of movies. Uh, he's got an incredible voice, an incredible look. He's been in at least one movie that we've talked about here on the show in the role of a chef or a cook in Destination Inner Space. Do you know who I'm talking about here? Um, oh. He was also in Big Trouble in Little China, if that gives it away. <laughs> <laughs> it's James Hong. Oh, yes. James Hong, Lo Pan. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's probably one of the most famous. He has done so much. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's great. 
I think I read somewhere that he's had, I don't know if I want to say he's had the most film work or film roles of anybody, but he's had a lot. Uh, he's, he's got, his career started what, in, in the uh, 1950s and just kept working and kept working TV, film, worked with John Carpenter. That's how I first discovered him. Was for Big Trouble in Little China. But if you go back and look at his career, wow. I mean, he did voice work too <laughs> for a lot of things as well. And he's still working. Yeah, I think so. He was uh, in the Kung Fu Panda series. Uh, he did some Batman work, did all sorts of great stuff. So, yeah, when I saw James Hong show up in this, it's like, yeah, that's that's my guy. I'm in. Uh, but these these cast members that we've already talked about, the whole cast is great. They were all a good ensemble. And basically the, the, the plot line is that these American agents are looking for a flying saucer that's crashed in red China. And along the way, they meet a team of Russian agents. And the rest of the film is really about them trying to find out about the saucer and trying to get along with the Russians. I liked that dynamic, that there wasn't a lot of animosity Mm -hmm. between the Russians and the Americans. I mean, there there was some tension, Mm -hmm. but they, they do pretty quickly start to work together. Yes. Toward this this goal. And I really appreciated that too. And I don't know if this is, you know, uh, uh, science brings us together. We're all after the same thing kind of story or, or message. But I really appreciated that. Yeah. There were complimentary people on the teams who could work together. They didn't make a whole lot of efforts to um, try and fight with another. That was rather refreshing, especially for the time this was released. Yeah. I really did appreciate that. It made it feel, I don't know, there's a sense of optimism to it. Mm -hmm. You know, these two major forces in the world uh, at the time were willing to kind of put everything aside and, hey, let's figure out what's going on with this flying saucer. I mean, it it helps that there's a pretty Russian woman on the other side that our, our handsome leading man can you know, fall in love with or whatever, but, uh, you know, (laughs) but there was still, um, you know, just this, this cool chemistry between everybody. And like you said, there were some complimentary people as well. You can kind of see friendships starting to develop that sort of thing. And I, I appreciated that too, quite a bit. It doesn't take us, uh, down this path of, Oh, you know, we're going to hate the Russians or whatever. It just, it, it turns into a flying saucer caper. <laughs> With James Hong yelling at everybody in the background. <laughs> and I loved that. Love that so much. Now, it doesn't dive right into, hey, there's a flying saucer out there. We're going to go look into it. It does start with a flying saucer, but it's a guy running a test flight. He's a, a, a test pilot mm-hmm. uh, for the government, I think, for the military. Is he Air Force? Yeah, I think he's Air Force. Yeah. And he thinks he sees a flying saucer and there's a problem with it and everything. And nobody believes him. So they drum him out of the test flight program. But he's not deterred. And I thought this was interesting, too. He just happens to know a guy who's got a really good radar, laser, radar-guided system thing. (laughs) (laughs) And he's going to keep looking for this flying saucer. And this is also something that really kind of caught me off guard. Because his buddy, who's got this radar-guided laser, whatever system it is, is killed. Spoiler alert. (laughs) He's killed. And I didn't expect that at all. The way the movie is set up, it feels like it's going to be those two guys who end up in Russia doing something. Yeah. And it, it really kind of, 
I don't know if subverted my expectations is the best way to put it, but it really kind of caught me off guard and it felt, oh God, I hate to say the word refreshing about a guy who, you know, was killed looking for a flying saucer, but it was kind of a refresh. It, it, it kept me on my toes. How's that, how about that? Yes. Kept me on my toes. Uh, did not expect that to happen at all. And it made the film feel a little more, I guess, dangerous is the best way to put it. Yeah. You know, because uh, we don't know what's going on with the saucer and, and where it's come from and, and why that happened. What did you think of when we finally see it? What did you think of the flying saucer design? I mean, it's a classic design. It's, it's all blue, but, uh, the inside particularly was very interesting in, in how they developed the controls. The outside was, was exactly what you would expect. So well, maybe that was a lo- little disappointing, but it certainly flew well and, and certainly was uh, aerodynamic and a really functional design. And that's where I was going with this. I think the outside, it's your standard flying saucer. Right. <laughs> How crazy that, that that's monster kids as fans of these movies. We have the standard flying saucer shape, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's a standard flying saucer shape, mm-hmm. but once they get inside it, I found the design pretty interesting mm-hmm. uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like a, man, I wish I knew more about this film and can find more information. So I'd like to know who did the design on that. Do, do you have any idea? Well, John P. Fulton, uh, also did the special effects on this movie Okay, with an assistant. I think he, he probably created the flying saucer. Well, it looks great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, John P. Fulton, huge, long career, did a lot of work, worked on genre pictures, worked on, you know, worked with uh, Hitchcock, worked on Ten Commandments. I mean, just did mm-hmm. a whole bunch, just a, a really long, fruitful career. And I'm glad he worked on this too. If he worked on the production design on the interior of the flying saucer, I was sold. I loved it. I want to hang out in that set. I thought yeah. it was cool. Yeah, it was. It was really neat. And I like the way that they get into it. Uh, it didn't have a ramp that goes down per se, you know, the way that you sometimes see with flying saucers. It's more of like a, a teles, not telescoping, but, uh, you know, the circle kind of opens mm-hmm. up. What's the word I'm looking for? Iris. It's like an yeah. iris opening in the bottom that, uh, they have a, there's a fun little moment where they're trying to figure out how to make that opening close and, Hey, that's not what that's not coming from inside the saucer. That's just his electric razor. No, it's coming from inside. I, I thought that was a neat little you know, moment as well. It doesn't take itself so seriously that you can't have these moments that are kind of fun. Yeah. I'm looking over the rest of the cast and the crew, and uh, I mean, I'm seeing some names and, and such that, that stand out to me, like Bernard Fox, you know, things like that. Mm. But again, it's one of these movies that just don't get a lot of attention, and I wish it did. I'm glad all of the films put it out, but they're also notorious for bare bones, Blu-ray and DVD releases. So there aren't any special features. There's no commentary. There's nothing else on here, which is too bad. How did you feel about the length? It does run about an hour 45. I thought it was good. I didn't feel like I was uh, waiting interminably or, or getting bored. I actually watched it with my mom. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Was this something that, that she was aware of before? I mean, did do you watch a lot of these movies with with your family, with your mother, that sort of thing? Um, not really, because she, she doesn't like the horror and that sort of thing. Mm. Nobody's perfect, Tim. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always fascinated about how people come to become monster kids, and that's why I was asking. Because I don't know if we've ever really talked about that with you, is like how you fell in love with this, these kinds of movies, did we? Have we talked about that? Um, not really. I mean, I watched and listened to um, stuff from the 40s and 50s 
with my mom and dad growing up, it wasn't really this kind of thing. And then I kind of gravitated to it just because I fell in love with the Universal Monster movies and then Hammer and and then everything else I discovered, really. (laughs) The Universal Monster movies will do it, man. Yep. That'll do it. You know, before we keep talking about this movie, it just occurred to me. We haven't done something in a while here on the show. I keep forgetting. And I'm not going to let you go before we play around to the Classic Five. You feel like it? Sure, go ahead. The Classic Five! All right, so the Classic Five, for people who don't know, is a game that we play here on the show. And I don't blame you for not knowing because I seem to be forgetting to do it lately on the show. I do it on the stream on the weakens. But here on the podcast, I've got this deck of cards. It's an actual deck of cards. Each one of these cards is a this or that. Which movie do you prefer style question? We're going to go through five of them. There are no wrong answers. It's all about classic monster movies. Tim, you want to play around? Yes, let's go. All right, card number one, right off the top. What's your favorite Ray Kellogg film, The Giant Gila Monster or The Killer Shrews? I think The Killer Shrews. The cold, glossy pages of True Magazine call The Killer Shrew the world's most savage mammal. You will never venture into a forest alone after you see The Killer Shrews with James Best and Ingrid Good, motion picture horror masterpiece. The Killer Shrews. Just because they're, they're so um, spooky. <laughs> I mean, they re- really are. Um, I know it's I know it's dogs wearing masks, but but they're uh, so so unsettling and and uh, nothing against the giant gila monster, but I think it's a, a well put together film with some real menace. Yeah, I mean, I I go toward the giant gila monster just because I find it kind of goofy fun. <laughs> but I think you're right. Killer Shrews is a scarier film. It's it plays with a lot of the, the best tropes that you get from zombie movies. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, you get everybody in an isolated location, surround them, and then what are you going to do? It's a siege film. Mm-hmm. And and I like that, too. But Giant Gila Monster's got awesome music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, card number two. What's your favorite follow-up to the original The Invisible Man? Hmm. I'd have to say The Invisible Man Returns. Fear. Fear of the unknown, the unseen, grips the populace. As a human being made invisible and insane by a potent drug, preys on the citizenry, intent on vengeance. Prison walls cannot hold him. Scotland Yard cannot stop him. And while science works frantically, while a loved one waits and hopes, the invisible hands of a condemned murderer deal out death and destruction. Spectra, I don't understand. Jeffrey, he's invisible. Why can't I see him? Oh, he's here, is he? He's catching me, Inspector. He wants to kill me. Hey, you can't go upstairs. Oh, good man. I do. Okay, afraid, darling. I can leave any moment I like. Take care of yourself, darling. I'll be all right. Helen, don't look at me like that. Deborah, he didn't kill Michael. Oh, didn't he? That shows how little you know, dear old Richard. No, no, no. Vincent Price was probably the the best since Claude Rains from a vocal characterization perspective. And um, there's a, a lot of good actors in that film. And it's in that scene where he's borrowing the costume from the Scarecrow is, is just first rate put together. John Fulton again. Yeah, you're right. That's right. Mm-hmm. I do like that one. It's For me, it's always a toss up between that one and 
I just love the invisible agent. Mm-hmm. I like the invisible man as superhero, you know, going behind enemy lines and doing stuff. Mm-hmm. And I love Peter Laurie in that one. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, invisible man returns with Vincent price doing the voice. That's something else. So good. All right. Card number three, this comes from the hammer deck who never appeared in a hammer film, but you really wish they had. I had been mowing this question in my brain and I had come up with someone who I thought had never been in a hammer film. It turns out that they had Richard Carlson. That's right. I just think he would have been so far much better than some of the bland leading men that they um, depended on in, in some of their uh, later films. But uh, I do know he was in the Whispering Smith film and I just wish he had stuck right across the pond a, a little longer but to give us some more memories. Bland leading men, huh? <laughs> there are some bland leading men in the later ones. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Them's fighting words. Are, no, I, I, I agree with you. I agree. <laughs> Richard Carlson as uh, like secret agent, Whispering Smith style. That, that That is fun. And it's one that people don't really think about when they think about Hammer films. Uh, I'm a huge Richard Carlson fan, so I knew exactly what you were going <laughs> to say when you said him. It was like, oh, but he was it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. I, I think the easy go-to for most people when I ask that question is either Vincent Price or Barbara Steele, mm-hmm. you know, but whether or not they had appeared in a Hammer film. Uh, and I've gotten into discussions and near arguments with people over the years about Barbara Steele not ever being in a Hammer film, although it would have been perfect for her. I mean, yeah. she was right there in <laughs> Europe. Uh, it would have been great to see her do something, but yeah, more Richard Carlson would be fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Says the guy who loves Creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> and uh, as as Steve Turek said in last week's episode, and this just in, in other news, water is wet. Um, <laughs> Derek loves Creature from the Black Lagoon and water is Yeah. So, all right. <laughs> okay. Uh, card number four. Oh, other than Godzilla, what's your favorite kaiju film? Godzilla. I'd have to say it's been uh, a while since I've seen this film. It's from 1969. Joseph Cotton and Cesar Romero. It's just a wacky, wacky Toho film where they discover an underseas civilization and, and there's these villains trying to take over the world. Is it a Latitude Zero? Yes, Latitude Zero. And Joseph Cotton has the most ridiculous wardrobe in it. <laughs> when the forces of nature erupt, the ocean floor opens up and five men and one woman are hurtled. 15 miles straight down to Latitude Zero. Discover the incredible space-age world of tomorrow at Latitude Zero. Activate your elevation. Discover the undersea metropolis, the battle of the flying submarines, the attack of the giant mutants, and discover the unbelievable human transplant, a live woman's brain into the body of a beast. Latitude Zero where man's future explodes 15 miles beneath the sea from National General Pictures and color rated G general audiences. All right, final question. Who's your favorite horror host? I'm going to have to uh, stay regional and go with Sammy Terry. Sam, really? Mm-hmm. Did you grow up with him? or I didn't, but his son is still active, playing the role, uh, and have seen him in person a bunch of times. And... He does a good job. This is no disrespect to the other poor host of old, but, but he, he's the one I, the best now. Well, I'm going to tell everybody I know, all the horror hosts I know, that Tim's <laughs> set. No, no, I'm not going <laughs> to. 
you know what? I have seen very, very little Sammy Terry. And uh, he's another one of those guys that, like, again, bring up Scott Morris. He grew up with Sam, the original Sammy Terry. And uh, he's seen the son carrying on the legacy, doing some live shows and that sort of thing back when we used to have live shows. Uh, and I've always heard that he's just a lot of fun to watch. I've seen very little myself. So whenever I hear somebody talking about Sammy Terry, I get kind of jealous because <laughs> he just sounds awesome. Um, are you in an area where you get to see him yeah. do do some programming and that sort of thing? I've been the last couple of years. Uh, we have uh, at our drive-in, they do like uh, four or five monster movies every summer. And he's always there doing his routine in between the movies. See, Scott goes to those things too. Small world, man. Mm-hmm. So cool. Well, I think that was five. You know, like I said, I wasn't going to let you get by without doing another round of the classic five with me, man. So I appreciate that. No problem. To get back to the bamboo saucer, uh, it is on Blu-ray and DVD now. Uh, it's something that Olive Films has put out. And even though I was complaining about how they're a bare bones company, they don't put a lot of special features on their, their discs. The transfer looks great. They do seem to do a pretty good job about tracking down good source material, uh, whether it's a print or they do a little bit of restoration or whatever. And it looks really good. I've actually got it playing over here on mute while we've been talking. And, uh, you know, here's the flying saucer flying around again. And, yeah, you can see some matte lines and that sort of thing. But it's late 1960s. What do you want? Mm -hmm. You can see that in War of the Worlds. (laughs) And that's a bonafide classic. So whatever. That seems to be the one criticism that I've read about the film is that sometimes people complain a little bit about the special effects, but I think it looks just fine for what it is. And besides, it's not a special effects picture. It's about this these two teams coming together to figure out what's going on with the saucer. You know? It'd be different if they're in outer space doing a lot of space combat or something, but I think it holds up really well. I do as well. It was a nice surprise to find. It's a real treat. Mm-hmm. A real treat. I want to know more about all these people that were involved. I don't know anything about Frank Telford uh, other than what I've been able to glean from the internet about this film. Again, not a lot of research material out there. So you know what? I'm just going to put this out there. Listeners, if you know anything about this film, Tim and I want to know about it. (laughs) We want to know more about this. Uh, You'd think with the various names involved, uh, Jerry Fairbanks is an Academy Award winner. Mm -hmm. He won an Academy Award for Best Short Subject. So you'd think with the people involved, There'd be something out there about this film. Yeah, it sure would. I wonder if maybe there's more out there about the the retitling when it got recut and re-released as Collision Course. Maybe that's what I need to do is kind of change my my focus. It would just be nice to to have a making of documentary or something like that. For sure. I mean, not that you can believe everything you read on Wikipedia, but even the Wikipedia entry that gives us a little bit of information... Mm -hmm just kind of teases us a little bit. Mm-hmm. I want to know more about what happened when Fairbanks went to the Ar- or the uh, Secretary of Defense and asked them for assistance in making their movie, mm-hmm. and the CIA said no. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know more about that. How did that go down? What's that meeting like, you know? <laughs> Apparently there was like some sort of negative reaction to what they were planning to do, and the Secretary of Defense is like, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe we don't want to do this. It's like, I want to know more about that. You know, how did that go down? And, and how do you, in the 1960s, get the Secretary of Defense to even look at a, a genre script in the first place? Is that a mm. thing? I don't, I want to know more about how that works. Mm. So anyway, but yeah, there just needs to be more out there. So again, if anybody knows anything about it, let us know. 
And of course I want the soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) Edward Paul was the uh, composer on this. And again, somebody else that I don't know anything about, but apparently he worked on a lot of things as well, including a movie from 1944 that I need to get my hands on called the hairy ape. Don't know anything (laughs) about it, but it sounds awesome. Oh man. If you like cold war 1960s (laughs) movies, I recommend you check this thing out. If you like flying saucer movies, I recommend you check this thing out. It it does bring a lot of the best of both worlds into this thing. It's a cool little flick, man. It is. I'm glad we we were able to uh, check it out and bring some light to it. Before we get to the uh, end of the show, I do want to just come in here real quick and say thank you to Tim for being part of the show. Not just this week, but as somebody who's been backing monster kid radio in one way or another uh, over the years, you've been a true friend to the podcast. And I hope I've been able to return some of that friendship in some way. You've always been a joy to speak with. I love seeing you at monster bash uh, when monster bash was still a thing. Uh, I hope it picks back up. I mean, that's a whole different conversation. Anyway, I guess what I'm getting at here is this listeners. Tim gave me the permission to mention this here on the show. There is a GoFundMe set up for Tim right now. Why, why is there a GoFundMe set up for Tim? Uh, Tim, over the past seven years, has been dealing with some pretty big, some pretty significant health challenges. And he's been battling his way through and, and doing an amazing job keeping cancer at bay. But after seven years, it's at a point now where Tim is needing to seek hospice care and that sort of thing. This GoFundMe page was set up by a uh, co-worker of his or a former co-worker of his, and it's it's set up to help him out as well as his son, uh, TJ. And I just wanted to make sure that there's a link in the show notes to the GoFundMe page and just make sure that everybody knows how much Tim has meant to Monster Kid Radio over the years. Tim has done some things behind the scenes. Uh, specifically, he's given me an incredible resource. Uh, You know, I don't mention this on the show enough. I have a lot of people who contribute things to the show, whether it's lists of movies or they do various website or social media things for me, uh, that sort of thing. One thing that Tim has done for me is he sent me a massive list of pretty much every genre movie ever made of the, from the classic era. And it's become a permanent resource here at Monster Kid Radio. It's amazingly in-depth, and I just don't know how you put it together, man. It's an incredible resource, like I said. And <laughs> listeners, it's not enough that he just created this document and sent it to me. No, he sent me an update. He didn't just get it done and call it good. No, he kept working on it and sent me a second one. So I just, I, I guess what I'm getting at is, uh, Tim, you're the man. Thank you. Really appreciate everything you've done for us. Thank you for taking some time out of your day uh, when you had hospice coming over and everything else going on and dealing with your health. Thank you for giving just a little bit of your time and and, uh, your energy to the podcast. So thanks a lot, Tim. I really appreciate it. Yes, Lon Chaney was all of these. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Miracle Man, the Phantom of the Opera. The world, fascinated and thrilled, called him the man of a thousand faces. But what was the secret Lon Chaney hid behind his thousand faces? What was the mystery in his life? 
Now, for the first time, the true story, torn from his heart, comes to the screen. Starring James Cagney, magnificent as the fabulous Lon Chaney, master of the grotesque, the weird, the strange. And Academy Award-winning Dorothy Malone and lovely Jane Greer as the two women who made his life more astounding, more touching than any of his unforgettable roles. I'll come to see you every week. Every week. I promise you. You had me fired. Damn you. Damn you. Damn you. Who are you? I'm from the collection agency. I've come to collect my wife. of Boggy Creek tells it like it happened. Through the eyes of the big technoscope cameras, you will see wildlife living with nature, a treat you will not soon forget. This is the setting for the new motion picture, Legend of Boggy Creek, filmed entirely on location around Falk, Arkansas. It is the true story of the Falk monster. This motion picture is being acclaimed by the motion picture industry as a strong contender for that industry's top award, the Academy. The Legend of Boggy Creek, color by Technicolor, is a PL film production presentation. All right, here we are at the very end of the show. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Thanks for sticking around to the end so you can hear about what's coming up next on Monster Kid Radio, as well as the various streams that we have, the Twitch channel watch parties that we do over at MonsterKidMovie.club or Twitch.tv slash MonsterKidRadio. I want to tell you, this Saturday, starting at 11 p.m., 11 p.m., no, it's 11 a.m., <laughs> I'm going to leave that in, 11 a.m. Pacific, we start the pre-show, and then around noon, we kick things off with the movies and it goes all day at specific time, of course, because I'm based out here in Portland, Oregon. We're going to be doing nothing but Mexican monster movies this Saturday. I've got some movies that I am itching to share with you guys and gals. So make sure you hop on over to the Monster Kid Radio Twitch channel this Saturday. They are totally free. There is a live chat. There's always a number of us there having a great time. There is a giveaway of some sort that I do every week. And it's just, you know, it's a good time. It's a lot of fun. I can't wait to see you guys and gals there. That's happening this Saturday. Now, on Tuesday, we do a shorter version of that. We call it the Monster Kid Astronomy Club, but it takes place at the same place on twitchtv.com slash monster you know follow the link in the show notes and this tuesday we're going to be showing a couple of science fiction movies i don't know what they're going to be yet i'm still trying to figure that one out i'll have more information about that in the future but i can tell you that a permanent feature of the astronomy club is what we call the star trek 30 which was originally going to be a 30 minute conversation about star trek 
it's usually gone about an hour now, and it's something that I look forward to a lot. So make sure you come back on Tuesday for that. That kicks off around 3.30 p.m. Pacific time with the pre-show, and then the movies kick off at 4 o'clock. And then the following Saturday in the Monster Kid Movie Club, we're going Frankenstein all day. We're going to be showing some interesting Frankenstein movies that day. And I say interesting because I can't show the Universal Frankenstein films. I can't very well show the Hammer Frankenstein films, but there are a number of films that have Frankenstein things in them that I can show. And that's what we're doing is a, a Frankenstein weekend Saturday Man, it'd really be better if it was a Frankenstein Friday, but it's on Saturday, so uh, it's a stitched together Saturday. How about that? <laughs> We're doing Frankenstein movies in two Saturdays from now. And then after that, who knows what's coming up next? You just have to stay tuned. If you're a Facebook user, head over there and look up the Monster Kid Movie Club or the Monster Kid Astronomy Club or both, because that's where I post the schedules and the updates and everything else going on. Of course, we've got a Monster Kid Radio page on Twitter. On Twitter. On Facebook as well. You know what? I'm not editing any of this. I'm leaving all these flubs in there. You're getting this episode on natural. That not exactly what I mean. You're getting this episode totally raw and, and whatever. Bottom line is Monster Kid Radio is on Facebook. Look up Monster Kid Radio. Get to the Facebook page and the Facebook group. And we're on Twitter. Just look up Monster Kid Radio on Twitter. We do have a thread over in the forums over at the Classic Horror Film Board. And I'm trying to figure out a few other places to start making some noise about Monster Kid Radio. Stay tuned for that. I'm thinking Reddit. I'd like to get something going on over at Reddit. So... Maybe that'll happen in the near future as well. There's a lot of things that are happening here at Monster Kid Radio. We're kind of seeing a lot of things change, things that I need to change to make Monster Kid Radio even better for 2021, even though we're already halfway through the first month. I feel like I've lost a lot of time already, but by the end of January, we should see some positive changes for all things M. KR, whether it's the Patreon, whether it's getting Monster Kid Radio on Reddit, wet it, wow. Nope, I'm leaving that in. Monster Kid Radio on Reddit, the streams, whatever. Got a lot of things that I want to see happen, and I know you guys and gals are backing me up on that, so I appreciate everything that you do for me. What's happening next week on the show? Well, I'm going to make a note of this over in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, but I'll tell you right now, as of... Today, I have something scheduled for tomorrow. Uh, I have a scheduled recording with filmmaker, audio producer, former podcaster, and a man with an upcoming crowdfunding project, Anthony DP Mann. I'm going to be recording with him tomorrow at 10 a.m. So by the time you guys and gals hear this, I may have already chatted with him. But if, yeah, you know what? I know I said I wasn't going to edit any of this. You know, I'm still not going to. Bottom line, I'm chatting with Anthony DP, man. That's what we're going to hear about next week here on the show. Future episode topics will include things like the movie The Zombies of Morotau with Tom Gorganis. And I've already talked about The Legend of Boggate Creek. We're going to be doing that with uh, Mark Matsky in the near future. I've got a handful of other things that I want to do as well. Some other book projects that I want to talk about with some authors and some editors. And of course, we got to get back to talking about movies on a regular basis. So that's going to be happening too. All of this will be noted at Monster Kid Radio. 
Net, where our contact information is as well. If you have any feedback for the show, you can contact us by giving us a call at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Or you can email us at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Also in the show notes, you're going to find the Amazon affiliate link. If you want to pick up a copy of the Bamboo Saucer for yourself, please consider using that link because we get like a nickel back or whatever, a nickel back. Man, you know, I <laughs> ah, we get a little bit back for everything that is sold through those Amazon affiliate links. So if you're going to pick up anything through Amazon, please consider clicking on that link first. Even if you're not going to buy the bamboo saucer, just click on that link first to go to Amazon. Then do your regular Amazon searches because it still stays within the Monster Kid Radio affiliate shell or, or thing or however it is they do it. I don't know. I just know that if you go through that link, we get a little bit of support from Amazon that way. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty much it. You know what? I'm starting to ramble now. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to wrap up by letting you know that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. The song The Creeper is copyright 2020, The Space Needles. You can find them over at thespaceneedles.bandcamp.com. Look up the album Lucky Jinx, and you can pick up The Creeper and eight other songs. It's a digital album, and you get to name your own price, so please consider giving them a little bit of support and letting him know that you heard about him here on monster kid radio my name is derek m cook i'll talk to everybody next week ciao